Welcome to Fair Talk, where we set out to provide enduring discussions on contemporary topics relevant to our economy, with particular emphasis on food, agriculture, and the environment. My name is Brady Deaton, Jr. of the Department of Food, Agriculture, and Resource Economics at the University of Guelph. I'll be your host. Barrett Kerwin is an assistant professor in the Department of Agriculture and Consumer Economics at the University of Illinois. Barrett, welcome to Fair Talk. Happy to be here. I think the issues that you are examining, ag subsidies and the effect of quota, are really critical to understanding both the historic and and the future effects of um, ag policy. I want to start by discussing your first article, which was published in the Journal of Political Economy, which examined the incidence of U.S. agriculture subsidies on farmland rental rates. You make a point that a primary goal of U.S. agriculture policy is to support farmer income. Why does it lead you to examine the issue of rental rates? Because the traditional uh, theory, the story that I've always heard was that uh, subsidies get capitalized into the land value. And I grew up on a, a farm in Idaho where we rented most of our land. And so the idea that all the subsidies were getting capitalized into the land value meant that the subsidy was going to the landlord who was um, hardly was was not a farmer, and so it got me thinking about well why why are we giving all this money to landlords? And so I just sort of naturally looked at rental rates. Yeah, I think the you know the idea of that the public wants to support um, farmers is, is generally accepted. But the idea that that support could be going to landowners, many of whom are not necessarily farmers, that 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 may be an issue of more debate. Were you surprised when you started looking into the data on farmland ownership and uh, farmers versus non-farmer owners of farmland? I was, in fact, I didn't realize that there were so many non-farmer owned um, acres. It uh, turned out that um, during the time period that I'm looking at, about forty-five percent of the farmland in the U.S. is not owned by a farmer, is owned by a non-farmer. And so I was sort of surprised that the number was that big. It seemed to make the issue much more important. Why then, let's talk a little bit about the theory. You mentioned that um, you had heard this story that the value of um, any increase in farmer income would get bid into the or capitalized into the value of farmland. Break that story down for me a little bit. How do economists, you know, generally make this argument? Why? Why is that a story that you heard before? Well, the uh, and this is, I think, it was you know something I'd heard growing up, just talking here, listening to farmers, but then getting into economics. It was probably one of the very first theories that I learned that if you have a um, an input into production, and that input has no elasticity, so that it's it's unresponsive. That the rents will ultimately go to that input. Um, I think it may have been in my very first uh, semester of microeconomics that I learned about Ricardian rents and this idea that um, far and farmland was the example that was given, and this idea that the the you know the more productive farmland that is going to earn returned above what sort of the average farm would re- or the average land would earn. And so this idea that 
that any productivity that the land has gets capitalized into this value. And if you think about subsidies, it's just in terms of value, it's just adding to the value of what's being created from the land. So um, because the land isn't responsive, the subsidies get um, captured by the landowner. When you were reviewing the, the literature on this, uh, did you find a lot of empirical work that had, had researched this question? So there was a theory here that, you know, if I have a more productive farm and I'm renting that out, that I'm going to charge more for it. I'm going to get more money for it. And um, if you have a policy that provides more profits, then I'm going to charge, I'm going to capture the value of that policy. But had there been a lot of studies that kind of empirically examined this question? Surprisingly, there haven't. There's been, there are a couple of very early studies that actually looked at tobacco quotas, sort of the subject of the second paper we're going to talk about today. But they were looking at tobacco quota in terms of, do the, as an asset, does the value of the quota get capitalized into sort of the value to, um, I mean, the subsidy get capitalized into the quota itself. And based on that early work, um, it's sort of, confirmed what um, economists had presumed. And it, it's, it's funny, but it seems like that was about all they needed. <laughs> From then on, it was um, just everybody knew that some, most, almost all of the subsidy would go to the landlord. And the amount of empirical research on it, though, was really quite uh, small. It was a little bit surprising. It's somewhat surprising also that a policy that would... Um... Uh, that policies that were designed to be help farmers would persist in light of that theory, especially when we started to understand that so much, you know, near, nearly 50% or you say 45% of the farmland wasn't owned by farmers. And I wonder if it's, uh, you know, that we just, that people just didn't understand the degree of non-farmer ownership of farmland or whether they really accepted that 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 basic tenet. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think that was um, one of the things that was most disturbing to me. And even before I knew sort of the extent to which the land was uh, rental, the farmland was rental land, it just didn't seem right to me that for, it seemed like decades you had agricultural economists testifying before Congress, telling them that these subsidies are ineffective, they go to the landowners, and Congress never really responding. And I just um, so I wanted to dig into that. I mean, either way, if it's because the theory is not true, that's interesting. If it's because the theory is true and somehow the landowners have more political power and that's what's driving policy, that's interesting too. So that's, that was sort of one of my key um, curiosities in getting into it. All right. So what do we need to know? Now, you, you study three different policy periods. And... Um... It seems to me that when you describe, and maybe you could just basic give us a basic overview of those policy periods, but it seems to me that in, in each case you're concerned about explaining whether or not the landlord and the tenant could anticipate the, uh, the, the, the amount of subsidy that would be paid, and maybe you could describe that subsidy, and also the magnitude of that subsidy. Okay. Um, so the, I guess the, the, one of the big issues during this time period was, uh, was the, um, the decoupling, as they've uh, called it, of farm payments 
where it went from a period where the subsidy was um, dependent on the price of the commodity. If the price was low, the subsidy would be high, and vice versa if the price were high. And they turned it into a subsidy that was not dependent on the price and not dependent on production. And so if you the idea was that there's this mistiming in terms of you sign a rental contract in the spring, but you don't really know the price or, or the subsidy that you're going to receive until the fall. And so in the beginning when there was this uncertainty about the price, it wasn't clear that you would actually find the that the empirical result would actually um, be valid because you didn't know what the farmer was anticipating. But as time went on, as it became less, as the subsidy became less dependent on the price or production, it became much more certain to the farmer in the spring and to the landlord what the subsidy would be. And so, you would, over time, you could see that the likelihood that the subsidy would get bid into the cash rental rate would have increased because the farmer would have been more certain about the subsidy that was going to be paid at the end of the year. So sort of trying to, uh, I guess, quote unquote, fix that problem at the beginning and then using later periods to sort of verify that that fix works that was part of the uh, uh, work into the paper. Right. So just for maybe one example, uh, in the 1996, the Federal Agriculture and Improvement Reform Act, before that, how would a landlord and what would a landlord and tenant have known about the subsidy um, before that Reform Act of 1986? What would they have known about the subsidy that the, um, the, the operator or the farmer actually working the land would have gotten? So the, um, probably the most important and in my in my eyes the most important thing that they would have known is the the um, not only was the subsidy dependent on the price mm -hmm. but the subsidy was attached to a specific acre of land and the subsidy also depended on the productivity of that land so they might have a before 1996 they might have a, a general good idea about um, the price based on futures prices and their expected basis. They may, may have been able to form some pretty good expectations that way. But in terms of the analysis, knowing that you have a more productive uh, piece of land that you're rent as a landlord, you have a more productive piece of land that's being rented out, not only can you charge more because it's more productive, but you could charge more because the subsidy is a function of that productivity. The, the subsidy is going to be even greater on the productive land than it is on the less productive land. And so being able to um, control for that, actually, being able to account for the fact that a lot of the variation we see in the subsidy is caused by the productivity of the land um, early on, that was, I think, one of the key insights into answering this question. All right. And for, for those listeners, there there's a lot of um, effort in this paper given to kind of the technical aspects of measuring them. And I'm sure we're not going to do justice in this podcast, but um, there is a there will be a link to this paper and the second paper we're going to discuss. And, and it's, it's worth taking a look at exactly, for those of you who are interested, exactly how uh, Barrett tries to, to take into account of these differences. 
So after 1996, though, it's a little different, right? After the after the, right. the fair reform. And so how how is that? Right after 1996, everything from the analyst's perspective got easier. But after 1996, um, the subsidy was essentially frozen at the 1996 level. Now there was some. It was on a schedule that was supposed to decline, and by 2002, there was supposed to be an end of those subsidies. But because it was frozen and fixed, not only did the tenant and farmer know how much the subsidy would be, but everybody else did as well. And it became possible for, more possible for other farmers to know how much the subsidy is going to be and start bidding against the farmer who already rents the land. And it's through sort of that comp competitive bidding process that one would expect that subsidy to get capitalized into the uh, into the rental rate. And so having sort of greater assurity that um, that was going to happen sort of increased the likelihood that the subsidy would be captured by the landowner instead of the farmer. Right. So so after 1996, everybody knows what the subsidy is going to be. I'm a I'm a uh, I'm a landlord and a tenant calls me up and gives me a, a rental price. We both we both then with certainty basically know what um, the uh, the farmer operator or the tenant is going to get in terms of subsidies and so does everyone exactly. else exactly so if, if they bid too low someone else comes along and, and and bids a little bit higher so that's how so you're really expecting then after this 1996 to have a much clearer insight into the effect of subsidies on rental rates is that right exactly yeah which you know, sort of solves many of the technical problems, <laughs> and I think makes the uh, makes the conclusion, the answer that that I get very very interesting. All right, well, let's let's get to that. Let's get to your conclusions and your answers. But before we do that, break down in general, you know, the, you know, the data that you got and the general method. I know you're look you're you used a, a fixed effects method, but we're talking about cash rents and. Right. And we're talking about things that happen over different time periods. So maybe just walk us through that. Okay. So the part of the, um, I guess, the fun of writing this paper was that I, I managed to get access to farm-level data from the USDA. So I had um, access to the microfiles of the Census of Agriculture, um, which took a lot of work. And uh, especially since I had to be in a room in Washington, D.C., a specific room, <laughs> in order to use the data, and I was at the time living in Boston, mm -hmm. made it a little bit tricky. But having access to those farm-level data really allowed me to look at this, um, this relationship between the productivity of the farm and what the farmer expected in their subsidy. And it turns out that that's really vital because... If you ignore that and you just look at sort of a county-level um, map with uh, darker shading for areas that get higher subsidy, it matches very closely to a map that looks at the rental rate for the land, where darker color would be uh, a higher rental rate. But once, and so looking at that, it looks like, oh, there's a very clear relationship. But what that ignores is the underlying productivity of that land. And so by getting down to the farm level and being able to control more specifically for the productivity on a very specific piece of land, 
once you control for that productivity, because the productivity is really what's driving the rental rate, and it happens just so happens that the productivity is also driving the subsidy. Once you control for that, the relationship really falls apart. That was very surprising. So I guess the the funnest part was getting those micro data and then being able to sort of do something that everybody knew needed to be done and everybody, you know, would have liked to have been able to do it, but without those micro data throughout through a time period. So I had to you know, use multiple years of the census and connect farms over time in order to be able to do this. Getting sort of those data was really the, the um, fundamental part of answering the question. Okay, and so so the key thing here is you're able to, so the, 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 the amount of the subsidy is going to be associated with the productivity and so is the rental rate, is that right? Right. So you're able to pull that, you're able to control for that productivity, which other people weren't able to control for, and that's going to allow you to, to better understand, you know, who's capturing this, uh, the incidence of this subsidy. Right. So, so what yeah, did you I find? Mean, well, I found that um, contrary to what has been presumed for um, decades, that instead of the full subsidy dollar going to the landlord, and I guess here I should mention that... Um, there are several different kinds of subsidies in the U.S., and I was focused on um, one specific subsidy, the one that was quote-unquote decoupled, and it, it was one that was um, really attached to the land. There's another um, production subsidy, not attached to a specific piece of land, but just based on the farmer's total production. And I was um, essentially ignoring that one. Again, I got lucky because the time period of the investigation, those production subsidies were really small, and almost all of the subsidy was coming through this land-specific subsidy. And so I found that instead of the, farm, the landowner getting the full um, subsidy dollar, and in fact, they were only getting something like 20 cents out of the subsidy dollar. So it wasn't even close. It wasn't even like, oh, yeah, they, they get most of the subsidy dollar. Or It was so low. It took me... I was actually... Um, it's, I guess it's funny now that I look back on it, but it probably took me twice as long to write the paper because the conclusion was so different than I had anticipated or anyone else had anticipated. So I had to keep going through it and checking it and getting more data and making sure that I didn't, you know, make a dumb coding mistake somewhere and make sure that this was really, this is really what's happening. Only 20 cents of the subsidy dollar is getting passed through to the landlord via the rental rate. And, and now, I guess well, I don't know if we mentioned it. We should probably make it explicit. The, the the subsidy works. It goes directly to the to the operator on the land, right? Right. Yeah. I guess that. Yeah. That's important. It turns out. Yeah. Okay. That the check gets mailed to the operator, whether or not the operator owns the land. It gets mailed to the um, the the farmer who's physically growing the crops, and that's who sort of receives the check. So the the only way that the landlord through cash rental rates, the only way the landlord could get the rent the subsidies by raising the rental rate. Right, but the theory had been, uh, the theory is, I think, to some extent that under, con you know, these competitive conditions, under this inelastic assumption about supply of farmland, that the the landlord would capture that that subsidy. And so, in a way, your, 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 your finding is surprising from that sense, but I wonder from the other sense that we discussed earlier from the political economy sense, the fact that these kind of persisted 
for so long and the goal of ag policy was to help farmers maybe maybe you solved a bit of a conundrum there right exactly it seems like it almost seems like um everybody else was in on the secret except for the ag economists <laughs> every the congressman knew that that their constituency was okay with the subsidy and they weren't worried about it getting passed on to landlords even though the economists kept saying that no it's really the landlords that are benefiting from this um, one i think one really interesting thing and uh, as you know as, as we've thought about why this result is one interesting thing is whenever i've presented this paper i always and it's kind of funny every single time there's been at least one person who has come up to me after the presentation and told me a story about a relationship that they or their mother or their neighbor has with a landlord and how important that relationship is and so having this you know i guess cold or this market mechanism determining the rental rate the stories that i kept hearing was no of course it's not the market that's determining it it's these personal relationships and that becomes really difficult to measure <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah actually i should say your, your research has inspired uh, several of us here to kind of examine that issue in canada and we have you know this similar similar story in some respects a great deal of the farmland is rented and a great deal it appears from our analysis of the land that's being rented is not necessarily owned by people that other farmers identify as farmers. So there's a lot of um, the, the issue of land ownership and non-farmer ownership of farmland, I think is going to persist as a question continually as we try to develop ag policies that, that generally... Yeah. And in places like Illinois, I'm, I'm learning, I've only been here for a few years, that it, the vast majority of land here is not owned by the farmer. Mm -hmm. And as I think time goes by, it's going to get even fewer acres actually owned by the farmer. Yeah, I found that the data on that in your paper alone, to just be, you know, make the paper worth reading, it was just really a succinct kind of gathering and discussion of that issue and ag subsidies and the the relationship between the theory, our abstraction of what's going on, and then testing our theory, which is really important, and then finding a finding that seemed consistent with what you would expect given the persistence of these policies um, to support farmers. So your story in, in some ways is a good news story. Uh, these policies have um, been passed on to uh, operators, farmer operators. I'd like to move to a second paper that, that you've written um, with your colleagues uh, Shinsuke Uchida and Kirk White that was just recently published in the American Journal of Agricultural Economics. And the title of that is Aggregate and Farm-Level Productivity Growth in Tobacco Before and After the Quota Buyout. And I think there's a couple of ties that, other than, you know, the first obvious tie is that you've been, you were involved in both papers, but the second one is it's tackling a, a real important policy issue. Uh, it's a very important policy issue in Canada. And, and the third, which I thought is interesting, is again, uh, as you mentioned, that at the time uh, before quota was bought out or the quota program ended in Kentucky, most of this quota wasn't, or a great portion of this quota, wasn't owned by people who were necessarily producing tobacco. Yeah. Right. The, um, it was the inception of this paper, the idea was um, probably one of the funnest lunchtime meetings I've ever had. Um, 
with Kirk White, we started talking about different ways to sort of assess this, the effect that subsidies were having on productivity or production. And, you know, are they distorting the production decision? Are they, are they keeping unproductive farmers in production? And so just sort of brainstorming and coming up with how would we answer that question was really, really fun. And this is sort of, this is the result of that. I want to just begin with, I love the first sentence of the paper. The Tobacco Transition Act of 2004 ended a 66-year-old federal farm program and replaced it with nothing. nothing. Let's, yeah. let's start there. Uh, where does this study take place? What was going on before and after 2004? So the tobacco quota program was one of the oldest um, I guess, subsidy-type programs. It originated in the 1930s in sort of New Deal legislation. It was uh, one of the attempts to address low and falling prices by limiting production. And so the um, tobacco producers agreed to limit their production based on a quota system. And the, over time, that system evolved to where the quota, the right to produce a specific amount of tobacco was no longer part of the land that was being used. Those two things got separated, and so the, so that the quota became a separate asset for the farmer. But in Kentucky, some of the restrictions about where that quota could be used stayed in place. And so the quota had to be used inside of the county in which it was originally issued. And so that sort of in and of itself is going to keep tobacco grown where it may not over time be productive to grow it. But then through this, um, you know, the whole uh, tobacco settlement issue and everything, the, um, I guess, bottom line is the government was getting, wanted to get out of uh, supporting tobacco prices. And so um, a few years before, so, so in 2004, the government bought all of the quota from the farmers, basically paid off the farmers, and eliminated this production. Did that control. come from taxpayers, or was that a settlement? Do you know how that, how the what, what financed that buyout? Uh, yeah, it was uh, settlement dollars mm -hmm. that financed the buyout. Okay, uh, the uh, so we're in Kentucky, and so it if I want to produce tobacco, and there's not enough quota in my particular county, let's say that I'm in Breathitt County, and I want to produce more quota, I can't borrow from another county. I can't borrow from Owsley County, let's say. Uh, and, right. uh, okay. and if you look at the sort of the productivity of the land in Kentucky, in the east you have the Appalachian Mountains that are, soil's not great, in the west you've got some really productive soil. And so you would, if you're in the West, you would prefer to buy some quota from the East. And if you're in the East, I think you would prefer to sell your quota because it would be so much more valuable in the West. But these uh, these county restrictions really limited that. And 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 that's kind of important. Well, the idea is that if there are these gains from trade. I mean, the same idea that uh, your kids can sit down after Halloween and trade their candy with each other and be better off with a fixed amount of candy because one likes chocolate, another likes peanut butter, the same way as that if I'm a more productive 
farmer and I'm a different region, if I can get quota, then then I can produce more and pay you the less productive farmer, um, and you're better off as well. Exactly, and if uh, you know there are different dimensions of productivity, so you might be a very productive farmer, but you're sort of stuck with quota in the eastern half of the state, so that ultimately the land's not as productive as you are, but you can't uh, you can't take your quota and move. Mm. Now, just to to reemphasize this about you know at the time you know probably initially, and my my grandfather uh, had tobacco quote and it was in land and then it got kind of decoupled if you will from land and into pounds that they could sell but at some point in your in your paper and i guess i mentioned it this at the beginning but the quota owner i guess and the um the tobacco grower are not necessarily the same thing just like the land owner and the farmer operator yes it's uh it's very much the same way where the the tobacco quota owner and the tobacco producer are um, typically two different people. So did the quota owners, when the buyout occurred, did both the quota owners and the producers uh, receive a payment, or was it only to the uh, the quota owners? Well, this is the, some of the interesting dynamics that we find in the paper that are just completely counterintuitive unless you understand the policy, was that a few years before 2004, before the quota was bought out, it was announced that um, the, they would pay both the um, owner and the producer, but if you were a producer um, who also owned the tobacco quota, you would get a bonus. And it was this sort of this producer bonus that actually caused a lot of these non-farmer tobacco quota owners to become tobacco farmers for a few years in order to capture that bonus. And that sort of drives some really weird dynamics that you see in the data. So they would have known, uh, these owners would have known that there was a, going to be a, a payment to both the owner and the um, operator? Right, yeah, because it was, it was announced and the payment schedule was sort of set uh, years mm -hmm. in advance of the ultimate buyout in 2004. And so you see a couple of things. You see the lease rates for the um, quota increased during this time period because mm -hmm. suddenly you, know, there was, you were going to get the bonus, so it was worth more. And the productivity of the, like the average productivity of tobacco farmers fell as, all, as more of these um, non-farmers <sighs> decided to take up farming for a few years in order to get the bonus. So you see some really weird dynamics where the productivity falls and at the same time the, the price of the, or the rental rate for the quota increases, um, all being driven by this anticipation of the policy. After the quota buyout, what are the general dynamics? What happens in, in, in the tobacco growing sector? Right. This is, um, it, it, it's, uh, it's at a time when we have all these um, smoking bans in public places, and uh, the growth, the demand for tobacco within the U.S. is just falling precipitously during this time period. So with, even if there was no policy change, the number of tobacco farms was decreasing um, greatly. But what you see, yeah, is that in Kentucky, the fall you, you, it's, again, it's very clear that there were a lot of people just hanging on 
until 2004. And in 2004, you get this precipitous drop in the number of tobacco producers. And at the same time, you get this huge reallocation where even in some counties, almost all of the tobacco production stops. And in the east, you get a lot, a lot less tobacco production. And in the west, you also get less tobacco production just because the demand is going down, but you get relatively more. You can see basically all of the tobacco quota. Um, that, that's not quite the right way to say it. You can see all of this reallocation where people who had been constrained on how much they could produce because of the limited number of quotas in their county, suddenly those particular farmers would start producing a lot more in the West, while in the East, you just saw tobacco farms just shutting down and the barns being used for something different. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting in your discussion here was this distinction between people who continued on in tobacco production and, and new entrants. Yeah, and that, that, that honestly caused us a, a bit of concern in just trying to deal with that because we saw, um, we actually saw people entering and in, in the data we see people becoming tobacco producers during this time when there's um, just precipitous drop in demand. And um, so we get a lot of exit exiters, people leaving, but you also get a, several entrants for people who are now who no longer, sorry, who previously didn't have access to quota, um, were, since there was no requirement, were able to enter tobacco production. So there's, there's yeah, this strange dynamic going on between uh, the productive farmers who want to grow tobacco and sort of the unproductive farmers who are happy to get rid of their quota and retire on the on the payout. Right. Now. Uh, we're going to talk about your results. Uh, you talk about your results are in terms of agriculture productivity growth, and I think that's where I, I wouldn't mind ending the discussion, kind of reviewing your findings in terms of that. But for for a more general audience, how should we think about these findings when we say there's an increase in agriculture productivity growth? What what do we mean by that term? So, and I, I think it's important to keep in mind that it's the difference between production growth and productivity growth because production is, is falling everywhere. But at the at a specific farm level, and again, we had the um, benefits of using farm level data in this analysis, at the farm, an individual farmer can produce more tobacco. That's productivity growth. If an individual using essentially the same inputs um, is able to produce more output, then something's happened to their productivity, technology has changed, their um, knowledge of how to grow something has changed, and so that's what we call productivity growth. So productivity, the way I think about it is the productivity is more sort of an individual producer aspect of production, where production itself is just sort of an overall aggregation of across producers. And so, yeah, so we're, we're looking at how does the productivity of the individual producer change during this time period. I'd like to move on to discussing your results, but before that, let's review the time periods that you're examining with your empirical analysis. Right, so the, um, the census, again, this is sort of limited by our data, but the census of agriculture is every five years, and so if you take a, a look at 
what's the trend and what's going on in tobacco before the buyout happens. So we looked from 1997 until 2002 um, using two years of the Census of Agriculture to get a sense of what's going on. And um, not surprisingly, there's not much um, growth in productivity there. Um, what's interesting, I guess, is that we, and we did struggle with this for a while, is that we actually find negative productivity growth. And so we we could we, we thought, you know, we must invest in something else because how can you decline in productivity and continue to produce? But and this is where it really became apparent that there were farmers who really shouldn't have been producing but were producing because the incentive to get this extra payment if you were a producer. And so we think that the negative overall effect that we find in the in that time period is being driven by these other people who are, who are hanging on or entering um, when they really don't have the skills or the equipment, perhaps. And in the second time period, we look at 2002 to 2007, so a period that bridges this 2004 buyout and see how the productivity changes there. And what we find is this um, relatively huge productivity growth where productivity increases by 44% mm. um, during this time period, during across the buyout time period. Productivity changes, what, how do you break them down then? What's causing that, that change in productivity after the, the quota buyout? So we, um, and our attempt is to, yeah, like you said, is to, is to break that aggregate number down into the different components and sort of see how much of this is being, is because of the removal of the quota. And so in some sense, our target is um, what, what we call reallocative efficiency, or the target we're searching for is if we reallocate the inputs, and in this sense, um, we're thinking about moving production from unproductive regions to more productive regions. If you allow that to happen across county boundaries, how much does that contribute to um, productivity growth, and that really is our fundamental measure of the distortion. Mm. Because if there were no distortion, um, productivity growth is going to come from entry and exit, it's going to come from sort of technical progress, but it's, but it's not going to come from moving your inputs around. Because if there's no barrier, you would have already moved them around. And so um, we, we decompose it into sort of how much of the growth is caused by unproductive people exiting versus more productive farmers entering, how much is caused by just the technical change in, in efficiency, how much is caused by the reallocation, which is sort of a measure of uh, distortion that was in place there. And we find that the reallocation is a, uh, is a, a big chunk of the, um, of the productivity growth that, that we observe. Well, Barrett, I, I really enjoyed this conversation, and uh, I've learned a lot, and uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you, Brady. It's been uh, a pleasure. I hope it's been insightful. Yes. Thanks again. Thank you very much. Thanks. You've been listening to Fair Talk with Brady Deaton, Jr. of the Department of Food, Agriculture, and Resource Economics at the University of Guelph. Thanks for joining us.